You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So that we're able to fully take advantage of uh, Ashley's time with us, we'll go ahead and get started. And uh, just, I mean, the, the Advent, uh, I say it a lot, is a special place, but just how remarkable it is that here we have Gerald Bray and Ashley Knoll in the same room. It's sort of like, if Ashley Knoll and Gerald Bray were to get into a reformational battle, who would win? Gerald. Uh, Gerald, Gerald, there you go. There you go, Cranmer versus Knox. So uh, it's, it's really good to see you, Dr. Bray. Welcome back. You've been in England and everywhere else, and uh, normally he's at the 730, uh, but he's, uh, he's, he's here today. So God bless you. Welcome back. Uh, Gerald. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, last but not least, Ashley Knoll, a longtime friend uh, of the Advent, actually a native of Birmingham, uh, was born at Caraway Methodist. Uh, and um, the reason why Caraway Methodist looks the way it is, because Ashley's born there. Uh, for those of you that, that know. I that. thought it was because I left. Yes, you left. Yeah, it all fell apart. Um, the star's still there. And is it still there? Is the star still there? Yeah, and, and Ashley's honor. Okay. Uh, well, Ashley is, uh, is uh, the foremost Cranmer scholar. Uh, he's over at Humboldt University in Berlin and uh, furiously working on uh, Cranmer's papers, which uh, are going to publication uh, in the near future. That's what the editors keep telling me. That's what the editors keep telling you. And, uh, and so uh, he's a canon theologian for the Diocese of Western Kansas, uh, an Episcopal priest, and, uh, uh, but more than that, a brother in the Lord Jesus. So let's pray for Ashley, and then uh, we'll get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the ministry of, of Ashley Knoll and uh, for others like him who uh, take seriously um, uh, scholarship, uh, not for scholarship's sake, uh, but because uh, it expresses the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray for those engaged in uh, that kind, the kind of scholarship that Ashley's engaged in, uh, that you would give them uh, clarity of thought, uh, that you would bless their efforts, uh, and through them that we might see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ashley. Because um, this is probably not the first time you have heard me. I'm sorry. Five ninety nine in the bookstore. Ask for <laughs> comfortable words. <laughs> I think that's a plug for the bookstore, right? Because this is probably not the first time you have heard me, you know that I have a specific way of beginning my talk. So if you please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus today. Amen. When I was growing up, I was told that Episcopalians, many were cold, but few were frozen. We had a reputation for being a head denomination and a bit queasy about getting into the heart territory. But that's far from the truth of the English reformers. If you are reading scholarly literature, you'll hear that today it's, um, 
in the guild, we talk about the reformers before the, the reformers under Henry VIII as being evangelicals, meaning it's not quite clear if they're Lutheran or Calvinist. Things are in flux. The word Protestant really isn't used until 1547 in England, and that therefore we should call them evangelicals, meaning that they're people of the gospel. And in fact, in their own day, they were called gospelers. But every time you see this in scholarly literature, there is a footnote which says, but we don't mean 18th century kinds of evangelicals. We don't mean where people are moved by the heart. I think we need to revisit what they say about themselves and discover that the English reformers, like their medieval predecessors, and like Erasmus the Tudor humanist, they are people of head and heart together. Let's listen to the conversion narrative by Thomas Bilney. I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, O oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief and principal. This one sentence through God's instruction working inwardly in my heart did so gladden it which before was wounded by the awareness of my sins almost to the point of desperation that I immediately felt a marvelous inner peace, so much so that my bruise, bruised bones leapt for joy. After this, the scripture began to be more pleasant to me than honey or the honeycomb. Did you notice the sensual language? Sweet, pleasant, the deep sense of bruised, desperation, and then marvelous joy, bruised bones leaping for joy. Listen to Catherine Parr. Can anyone tell us who Catherine Parr was? The surviving widow of Henry VIII, his last wife. Come to me, all ye that labor and are burdened, and I shall refresh you. What gentle, merciful, and comfortable words are these to all sinners. What a most gracious, comfortable, and gentle saying was this, with such pleasant and sweet words to allure his enemies to come unto him. When I behold the graciousness, liberality, mercy, and goodness of the Lord, I am encouraged bold and stirred to ask such a no, for such a noble gift as living faith. By this faith I am assured, and by this assurance I feel the remission of my sins. This is that that maketh me bold. This is that that comforteth me. This is that that quencheth all despair. Thus I feel myself to come, as it were, in a new garment before God, and now by his mercy to be taken just and righteous. Then I began to dwell in God by charity, knowing by the loving charity of God in the remission of my sins, that God is charity, as St. John says, 
so that my faith, whereby I came to know God, and whereby it pleased God even because I trusted in him to justify me, spraying this excellent charity in my heart. I felt a supernatural change within, glad in my heart. I felt inner peace. I leapt for joy, more pleasant than honey, pleasant and sweet words. I am assured. I feel the remission of my sins. I feel myself in a new garment. I dwell in charity. To borrow a term from T.S. Eliot, the first English reformers clearly felt their thought. They kept head and heart together. Listen to Cramner discussing how head and heart are affected by the proclamation of the gospel. If the profession of our faith of the remission of our sins enters within the deepness of our hearts, then it must needs kindle a warm fire of love in our hearts towards God and towards all others for the love of God. A fervent mind to seek, procure, and further God's honor, will, and pleasure in all things. A good will in mind to help every man and to do good unto them so far as our might, wisdom, learning, counsel, health, strength, and all other gifts which we have received of God will extend. And, in short, a firm intent and purpose to do all that is good and leave all that is evil. Anyone notice something about heart language? About the power of love? About what is the result of the good news? For the Tudor reformers, Catherine Parr said it best. Only when they knew God loved them enough to freely forgive them of their sins and to put them in right relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ and faith in his promises, only then could they begin to love. Because only then would fear, shame um, be cast out and they were free to begin to love God. The heart of the English Reformation is preaching how God makes it possible for us to return love to him that he has given us. You know, it's really important today to understand the difference between unconditional affirmation and unconditional love. Can you think what the difference might be? Unconditional affirmation is what your dog gives you, not your cat, <laughs> but your dog. You go away for three weeks, don't tell the dog you're leaving, come back, what will the dog do? Jump up and lick you. You try that with your spouse. A dog never challenges your right to be the center of your own universe, right? That's unconditional affirmation. Never challenging someone's right to be at the center of their own universe, just affirming them as they are. That's not what God does. Think about love. What is the very essence of love? 
Love seeks by its nature to enter into relationship, right? To draw out of the beloved a loving response. And if you are going to enter into relationship with anyone, you have to stop thinking about yourself at least a little, right? And perfect, unconditional love, doesn't that by definition seek to draw out of the beloved a love that is as selfless, as sacrificial, as steady, as unconditional as the love it has received? Isn't that the heart of the gospel? to enable us to be as firmly fixed in loving and serving God as he is fixed in loving and serving us? Doesn't entering into a relationship with God challenge our right to be the center of the universe? Asking us to die to false understandings of ourselves and even false understandings of our needs to find our glory in not what we do to please him or others or even ourselves, but to find our glory that it is the glory of God to love the unworthy, to find our glory that he loves us and has committed to making us as beautiful in the age to come as he is now. The fall began, why? Adam and Eve failed to trust God's love. The devil made them think that God was somehow competing with them and afraid that they would be good as him, so he restricted the apple from them. And not trusting God's love, they ate, and we all know the consequences. If that's how the fall began, how do we reverse it? We begin to trust God's love for us. And express that trust by loving him. And that's the whole point of Cramner's liturgy, is to proclaim scripture's promises and to remind us of Christ's sacrifice that we might be supernaturally empowered as if we were in a heart transplant surgery during divine worship. That as we sit under his word, proclaimed through preaching and the sacrament, that he will, by his spirit, do something in our hearts and enable us to leave. Have you ever wondered why the glory is at the end of Cranmer's communion service? How does it open? Unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are thick. Kid, cleanse the hearts, the inspiration of our hearts by thy Holy Spirit that what? We may worthily love thee and, so uh, perf- 
perfectly lovely and worthily magnify thy holy name. What comes first? We have to love before we have any chance of worthily magnifying his name, right? And the Gloria is because he has moved our hearts as we have remembered with bread and wine what he has done for us. And what sits in the middle of this service? The comfortable words. And where has Cramner placed them in his final revision? Right before the words, lift up your hearts. Why do you suppose he puts the comfortable words there? Well, it's because he wants people to be allured by the message of the comfortable words to fall in love with God again. And therefore, that love will draw us up when we are encouraged to lift up our hearts that are the faith in the promises, the power of love that comes from that will enable us to stand in the holy of holies in the presence of Christ so that he might feed us. Anyone here uh, ever heard of those four spiritual laws? In Anglicanism, we have the four gospel promises. The comfortable words were intended by Cramner to be the gospel in brief. As all things, Cramner has taken this from a previous liturgical form where where they were originally a sentence to reassure people about the forgiveness of sin. And there were five different verses, and you would only choose one of them. Cramner rearranges make some exchanges, creates four, and says they must all be read and be read in order. Because now we see Cramner's understanding of the gospel of divine allurement. Catherine Parr used that word as one of the favorite words of the reformers. Because in the medieval times, if you walked into any parish church in England and you looked above the chancel arch, what would you see? Jesus as the Lord of doom, Jesus as your judge, deciding who goes right and who goes left, who goes to the demons, who goes to the angels. In the words of Amon Duffy, there was Jesus making sure that you would pay for your sins to the last farthing. Uh, Amon loves the medieval period. Is that a fair statement, Gerald? And he says that this emphasis on judgment might be excessive at times. And if Eamon Duffy says it, you can be sure that our reformers were totally convinced of that. You may have heard um, about the reformers whitewashing the walls of churches because they were Philistines and didn't appreciate art. Guess what they're whitewashing? this moral sense of having to earn and being good enough for God and being 
making people hope they might be saved, but constantly making them afraid they may not be. Because between these two, hope and fear, they were determined that that would give people the maximum uh, cause to work hard to please God. And they, the penitentials in England in 1500 literally say that between these two millstones of hope and fear, love for God will be produced. Do you think hope and fear produces love? The reformers didn't. Cramner didn't. He had this bizarre biblical notion that we love because we are first loved by him. And therefore, the comfortable words, the Anglican gospel promises were designed to have people hear not Jesus as their judge, but Jesus as the good shepherd who goes and picks up the wounded and brings them back. Jesus who gives comfort and through comfort and not fear draws people into his loving embrace. So what's the very first comfortable word? Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Just think about that. Who's he talking about? Humanity, right? Human need. Human longing. Human longing for rescue. Does he mention sin? Hell? judgment? Is he trying to instill fear in people as the beginning of the pathway back? He figures they already are fearful. He wants to give comfort, so he starts with human need, human longing. What's the next comfortable word? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that all that, should, all that believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That God so loved the world. First one was, was humanity. Whose perspective are we looking at now? God's. Does he mention law? Judgment? Hell? What's he mention? Love. If humanity longs to be rescued, God longs to rescue. Everything, the whole gospel narrative is between these two truths. That humanity, even if it doesn't know it, who is their rescuer? They know that there is a restlessness. Anyone ever seen The Matrix? I know it's a really old movie today. But what, how, that scene where they invite Neo to take the pills, how does he get him to do it? Have you felt a restlessness that something in the world isn't right? That is the human condition apart from Jesus, isn't it? No matter how much success or money or fame, no matter how much you hide from not having those things, nothing makes the restlessness go away. 
until you rest in Jesus Christ. And that's what the comfortable words tell us. Human longing and then divine longing to answer that need. But how is that done? What's the next comfortable word? One of my many shortcomings is that I always blank on the third one. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Ah, we now have used the S word, right? We now have the sense of sin and that we need to be saved from it. Salvation from a human point of view is connecting that anxiety, that restlessness, that longing to relief from the burden of sin that separates us from God, that separates us from one another, that separates us from our true self. Salvation means being delivered from the burden of our sins. But these are English reformers. What does Paul say? That's why Jesus Christ came into this world. I cannot deliver myself from this burden. I cannot free. Catherine Parr in her Lamentations of a Sinner says, the more good works I did to try to make things right, the more enmeshed and entwined I became in my sinfulness. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Salvation from the human point of view is coming to Christ and trusting his promises that what he has done on the cross is sufficient to restore us for eternity to God's loving embrace. But what is salvation? What does salvation look like from God's perspective? How can Jesus be our Savior? And that's the fourth and most poignant comfortable word. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Let's just think about that. If any man sin, we have a judge. Is that what it says? Over the chancel arch? We have an advocate, a defense lawyer, And it's legal language, right? And one of the points the reformers make is that to be justified in the Greek, as opposed to the Latin, means to be declared righteous. It's a forensic term. Jesus comes as our defense lawyer and enables us to be declared righteous. But how are we able to be declared righteous even if we are still a mixed bag of good and sinful impulses. Jesus dies for us. You know, one of the virtues of being a Christian for a long time is having that truth deeply sink into your heart. But one of the drawbacks to being a Christian a long time is how 
the weirdness of that can become mundane. We can forget how incredibly incomprehensible it is that he who by definition is above all of our mess comes into it and lets us mess him up to the point that the immortal becomes mortal and dies. So that mortal human beings can become immortal. What a glorious exchange. And I know which, one, which party gets the better end of the deal. The whole point of communion is remembering that sacrifice once offered and the difference it makes in our lives. And therefore, Cramner has put these words together that we might be allured, not afraid of God, but deeply moved to see that his love is not mere words, but love in action. And as Christ not only died, but rose from us, as we trust in him, his spirit is at work in us, giving us new life, enabling us to begin to love God and one another and those outside our fellowship as we are loved by God. And Cramner trusts as God's word, the scripture verses are spoken over the congregation with God's word, God's spirit will go, and it will quicken in our hearts a love and joy. And when the celebrant says, lift up your hearts, we gladly and fully respond and take our place at the heavenly banquet in the presence of Christ himself by faith, the Spirit join us proleptically, a foretaste of our eternal home, and that because of that we will be strengthened to love and serve him um, in our daily life because we are called not only to receive but to give. I work with elite athletes, and one of the things we try to help them understand that every human being needs to be hooked up to his or her purpose. And what is the purpose for every human being? It takes different shapes and forms, but what is the purpose for every human being? To receive love and then give it. We see it in a microcosm with a mother and child. We see it on a universal scale in the cross of Christ. May the regular repetition of the gospel promises of Anglicanism continue to stir in us um, a desire and an ability to express our humanity by not only regularly receiving God's love, but spreading it abroad. In Jesus' name, amen. Could you uh, enlighten us, or I guess correct us in the misuse of love today in the church? 
Anyone ever survive high school? <laughs> high school makes really clear the power of a peer group, right? If you're not athletic enough to be part of a sports team, then you go to the band, right? Because there's a peer group. Or you do drama club because there's a peer group. There is power in human affirmation. There is power in making a difference in society. Um, twice a year, I go with a group of professional, a different group, but a, a group of professional athletes to Tijuana to build a home for a homeless family. And it's amazing watching these incredibly strong, buff men and women crying when they give the keys to the house to uh, the family because they have been so self-focused on themselves that a part of their human nature, thinking of others, has dried up. And when, it be when they can see that they have made a tremendous difference, they come alive. As one um, uh, social medalist said, I hate to paint and saw and nail, but I thought, okay, it's for a good cause, I'll come. But then I thought, I hate to nail and paint and saw, but then, okay, it's for a good cause, I'll come. But when I saw a family of six living in a cardboard box, I discovered how much I love to paint and nail and saw. There is power in human affirmation. There is power in helping one another. That is part of God's design for us to pass on the love we have received. But when churches get so caught up in the power of human affirmation and encouraging us to make a difference in our horizontal relationships, as important and beautiful as that is, if they don't help people root it in God's love for them, if they don't help people develop a vertical relationship, when you're holding your dead two-year-old child in your arms, human affirmation fails. When you have seen your life's work sold at auction and you wonder what it's been all about and what, your, what you thought were good decisions but clearly now were bad decisions, what that has done to your family, human affirmation fails. When you don't think or know how to redeem your mistakes and have no idea how to look forward to a good future, human affirmation fails. But God's love does not. His power to redeem does not. His promise to work even the most horrendous things to good in his time and his way, that does not fail. And we need to help the church today even as we appreciate 
the emphasis on horizontal relationships and perhaps recognize we may not have put enough emphasis on that in the past. But that must go out of something deeper, a relationship with God to be with us in the most difficult times and to sustain our ability to help one another. Because if we just love others in our own strength, well, first of all, we'll discover some folks are easier to love than others. And we will be burnt out in our good intentions. And we won't be offering people the anchor that they need, and you can see it as our congregations diminish because we have failed to root their relationship to the church in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Three little subset questions in one. Was Dr. Cranmer the gentle, forgiving man as he's often portrayed? Is that good history? In keeping with the turn by Shakespeare, that if you did Dr. Cranmer a wrong turn, you earned a good friend. He would be your friend forever. Be your friend forever. Two, relatedly, did Dr. Cranmer self-consciously view the act of forgiving as an act of evangelism? And relatedly and thirdly, did old Henry see his archbishop as that kind of a man? So Ladies and gentlemen, you, we will try to do a miracle because those are three questions. You've seen how long I take to answer one question, and we have two whole minutes left. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I'll point you to something very concrete about that. You may have answered this in the last uh, answer, but any insights on how to redeploy the insights of the English reformers for our 21st century postmodern world? That's an excellent question. I'm not sure I have an excellent answer. Um, the most important thing is to recover What in brief are the principles of the English Reformation? First of all, that um, it's not what you do for God, but what God does for you. Get right that uh, we are saved by grace. Two, how do we know that? We look at look to Scripture. But we have to remember that we live in an era where many people have experienced God as judgment. Um, and therefore, they see the Bible as a rule book by which to earn God's love. When you think of God, Christianity is what you have to do to please God, then Bible becomes a rule book. We have to help people understand that the Bible not only tells us what God wants to do in us and how we should respond, but it's also his means of enabling us to do it. That if you want to meet God, you don't hug a tree. 
you dwell on his word, and his word is the living mind of Christ in us. And that from that, we can begin to find the power to be new. And then thirdly, that even with our, we are all broken, fallible human beings. For me, progression in sanctification means not my increasing spiritual supermanness, but becoming more aware of the ways that I have manipulated God and um, uh, others towards my own self-centeredness that God in his mercy did not show me lest I be completely overwhelmed, that as I climb to the foothills, I become more aware of the mountains that have always been in the background. But in that reality, we still do make progress in becoming more loving and more servant-hearted. And what people will notice is the effectiveness of the word making us different, not only on our lips, but in our lives. And that, of course, it's much easier to preach the gospel than to see it working through us in ways that people will recognize. But therefore, we go back to Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your faith with your salvation with fear and trembling. We we do our best to make good choices, be aware of trying to make good choices, but we put all our hope on verse 13, for it is God who's at work in us to will and to do. So we ask God to make us credible witnesses to his transforming power of the gospel of grace that we receive through faith, despite our foibles, that some of his goodness might leak out to, through us to others and touch them that there is hope, that there is an anchor, that there is something besides just human beings muddling together to get through it. And I believe that's it, folks. Message prayer. Lord bless us. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.